ascended to heaven, who has not at some point said, this is it. This must be the end. Every generation experiences end times like circumstances. Even Paul's generation. In this broken world, there won't be world peace. But a day is coming where swords will be laid down forever. Jesus came and by the cross and resurrection, He made certain of that day. He secured that day, but He's telling us now, while we wait, there will be wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He goes on, there will be great earthquakes. In various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences. All these things are happening, right? We hear of terrible things like these, which are reminders of this devastatingly broken world that we live in. We hear them on a daily basis. This world is is broken. We are broken. Great earthquakes, famines, pestilences, he says, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now, he doesn't specify here what he means by signs from heaven. Later in the chapter, there'll be signs in sun and moon and stars. But he does say there will be terrors Now, that's interesting. Here in verse 11, he says, there will be terrors. But if we just go back a few verses, in verse 9, he says, don't be terrified. Now, how do those two things work together? There will be, Jesus said, who is truth, terrors, which means terrifying things that are going to happen. But church, don't be terrified. We as the church, those who are identified with Jesus, who has overcome the world, I've spoken these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart or be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Those of us who are identified with Him ought to observe these terrors, whatever they are, in a different light than the world does. We look at them differently. We respond to them differently, or at least we ought to. Jesus has already said these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. But it will be. The end will be. It will come. I will return. I will rescue you. This is not your end. This is not how things resolve for you. There's something greater coming. So don't be terrified even at terrors. Because I've overcome even those. We were talking in the office this week about the Dust Bowl. 1930s. You seen pictures of this? 
in the midst of the great, these great dust storms that come across the country and these huge mountains of black dust that would engulf cities. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it. Look at a picture and read terrors. <laughs> Put those two things together. That would be terrifying. I mean, you see this wall, mountain of dust that's going to consume you. What are you thinking? Certainly the church in that day is saying, this is it. This is the end. The time is at hand. But here we are decades later. And we see again that the end was not at once. These things had to take place first. There are going to be terrifying things that come, but don't be terrified. We must fight as followers of Jesus, those who trust in Him, for a faith that believes that He is completely sovereign over our lives and that no war or dust storm or earthquake or cultural bias can snatch us out of His hand. That we are secure in Christ. He goes on in verse 12, but before all this, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, this verse began immediately. We don't have to turn very many pages in the scriptures. We don't have to wait for decades to see this being fulfilled. This is how it has been for the church since Christ's ascension into heaven. This is normative in the church. We don't need to look any further than Luke's second book that he wrote to Theophilus, the book of Acts, to see it played out in vicious ways. Now, for those of us this morning here in Westerville, Ohio, we might be thinking, well, maybe we're closer to experiencing this kind of persecution than ever before in our country. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's likely true. But our circumstances here don't determine how we understand these verses. These verses don't become true or real simply because our circumstances may be heading in that direction. This verse has been true since it was written, and it's been fulfilled again and again. It's happening and has happened for many, many followers of Jesus. And we should not be surprised when it comes to us. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And later in the chapter, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. 
But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial, that gives us a sense, a picture of intense terrors. When the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, this is normative. Jesus was right. But, Peter says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Don't be terrified. Like Jesus said, rejoice. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I think that fits exactly with what Jesus is saying here in Luke 21, verse 28. The verse we talked about last week that we want to keep before us as we go through this whole section. Verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So, Peter is saying, the way that I face the persecution prior to his coming will significantly affect the rejoicing rejoicing I experience when I see him coming. Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You'll be rescued. You'll be saved. You'll be with me forever, Jesus says. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. In other words, Jesus is saying there's going to be persecution that's going to come from religious groups, And there's going to be persecution that comes from civil authorities. You're going to be brought before kings and governors. And don't neglect these words. For my name's sake. Because you are identified with me, these things are going to take place. These things are going to happen. For my name's sake. Now, I want you to notice and listen here. The kinds of things that Jesus has just listed. The kinds of things that he's talking about in all of this section here are obvious and clear things. Wars, earthquakes, physical persecution. They're not things that we have to go searching the internet for. They're not conspiracy theories. They're clear and obvious. If Jesus is saying here, telling me, don't be terrified at things that are terror-filled, then I don't need to go looking for other things to be terrified at. 
Because he doesn't want me to be terrified. He doesn't want me to worry. He wants me to look at him and trust in him and focus on him. So that he would be glorified. And so how should we respond? How should we, those who are identified with Christ, view all of these sorts of things? Verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, if we just pulled that verse out, that's probably something we could apply to as followers of Jesus to many different times in our life. Lord, if you will just give me opportunity today, I will bear witness to your name. Lord, I'm going into school today. I'm going into my workplace today. I'm going to have a a, a meal with my neighbors today. I'm going to wherever today. You know the circumstances, Lord. If you will just give me opportunity, I will bear witness to your name. This is amazing because this is what Jesus says is opportunity to bear witness to your name. It may not be what we mean to pray for, It may not be what we ask for, but Jesus says when these difficulties, when these terrors, when these troubles come, this is opportunity for you. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Witnessing to what God has done and who he is. You remember how the disciples did this again and again and again and again and again. You go through the book of Acts, you see story after story. Peter and John before the council, Paul before Festus. All of the time in the midst of persecution, not seeking their own fame, not seeking their own security, but making use of the opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to God and what he has done through Christ. This will be your opportunity. How can we, in our minds, be helped to not approach these circumstances in terror or fear? I think Grasping Jesus' words, embracing them in verse 13, is a means of helping us. That Jesus, who is sovereign over those circumstances and sovereign over the, the most minute part of our lives, knows we're going into them, tells us we'll go into them, sees them, not as disastrous, but as opportunity to bear witness to Him. is opportunity to shine light on who He is and His glory and what He's done to rescue humans from hell. This will be your opportunity, Jesus says. Verse 14, He goes on, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand, How to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
Ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we must determine to trust God and trust His Spirit. There's great encouragement in what Jesus is saying here. I will give to you in those moments. I will be with you in those times. Just as he says, as he's preparing his disciples, commissioning his disciples, sending them out as he is readying to be ascended into heaven. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you and I'll give to you. That's wonderfully hopeful, but often these verses can be misused or misapplied. Jesus is not saying here or intending here that we be people who haphazardly go through life day to day and we just open our mouths and whatever comes out is by the Spirit and we're just going to let Him guide and, and we don't have to really do anything because He said, settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand what you're going to say. Don't, don't think about that. Don't worry about that. Just You just go into any circumstance and open your mouth and whatever comes out, that's the Holy Spirit. That's not all what he's saying here. We need to bolster our doctrine of the Spirit if that's the way we're living. Because what does the Spirit do according to Jesus? In John 14, 15, and 16, as Jesus is preparing the disciples, teaching them, readying them for him leaving, and telling them, I'm going to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. In 14, 26, John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And Jesus reiterates that throughout 14, 15, and 16 in John's Gospel. In fact, he refers there to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And we know Jesus, when he prays in the following chapter, chapter 17, for us, those who would follow him, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the Spirit is coming to us, filling us to remind us, to bring to remembrance what Jesus has spoken to us. And He's the Spirit of truth. And Jesus prays for us, sanctify them, grow them by the truth. Your word is truth, God. So this ought to lead us, as Jesus is saying here, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That ought to lead us to immerse ourselves in the word of God, in the truth. The more word-filled and spirit-filled I am the less worry-filled I will be. I won't have to contemplate what in the world am I going to say to these men who are coming against me. I won't have to worry about that. Because my mind and my heart are filled with the Word of God. And the Spirit then brings to remembrance those things that have been planted deeply into my mind and my heart. We ought to be hiding the word in our hearts so that the Spirit has something to point to. 
has something to draw from, to bring to our remembrance. And so I would ask you, are you preparing now, through feasting on the Word, to be able to lift your head and speak by the power of the Holy Spirit when troubles come into your life? Let me, let me say just quickly here before we move on. If you are a person, and we all struggle with this, I struggle with this. If you're a person who comes to church, attends what many would say is faithfully even, but you're not, outside of what you hear read here, you're not in God's Word. You don't study God's Word. You don't read God's Word. You don't meditate on God's Word. I want to encourage you, there is an idolatry happening in your heart. There's idolatry there that needs to be repented of. Whatever that is, there's something that you're saying, this I will worship and give myself to, but I don't have time to read the Bible, or I don't have whatever to read God's Word. I don't have the affections, I don't have the desire, I don't have the time, I don't have whatever. But, but these things, these articles, these games, this social media, this whatever, I can't help it. I just go to it. I just love it. I turn it on. I read it or I play this or I do whatever. You guys, that is idolatry. It's idolatry when I do it. It's idolatry when any of us do it. Because we're saying yes, worshiping something other than God and refusing Him. I would encourage you, examine your heart and see what the idol is there. And be quick to repent, knowing that God is gracious and it has been dealt with at the cross. Verse 16 goes on. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. Now this is hard. Jesus is certainly not minimizing the seriousness of following him here. Coming from a life that would be considered easy as it relates to suffering for Christ, I'll tell you from my own heart, it would be, it would be difficult. If the Lord called on me or one of you to be a martyr for him, that would be difficult. But what I can't even begin to wrap my mind around is if that was because my parents or my brother or my sister or my friends handed me over to the authorities as a follower of Jesus. That's, that's hard. But Jesus says that's going to happen. It's going to happen. Do you know what I would want to know more than anything else in the world then? 
I would want to know that I wanted Jesus and life with him more than I wanted any of those earthly friends. And Luke 14 would make a lot more sense to me. I'd want that to be true about me. In Luke 14, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. We ought to be preparing our hearts, renouncing the idols in our hearts, preparing for Christ to be all. And so he goes on, verse 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, I mentioned last week as we're beginning this section that this is all hopeful. That Jesus is encouraging the disciples through this section. Now, it may not feel like that this morning. I hope it does. But you may hear some of this, read some of this, and you're like, this is not encouraging at all. This is not hopeful at all. Is it true? Is it true that this, Jesus saying, you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake, is actually hopeful? That we can see this verse as hopeful? And I think absolutely the answer is yes. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, blessed, which means happy, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is hopeful. This is encouragement. When it comes... There's hope shining brightly in the midst of it, Jesus is saying. And the hope is me, he's saying. The world blinded by Satan, and that's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The world that is blinded by Satan hates Christ and it also hates his representatives. So you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. But, he says, not a hair of your head will perish. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because just a few words earlier, he says, some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will, be, will perish. So you will die, but you won't die. Is that what he's saying here? Some of you will be put to death, but I won't let them do that. I, I won't let you die. 
Is that a contradiction? No. He's referring to eternity. That as followers of Jesus, we understand that death is simply a door. It may be for some of us a very painful one. It may be very painful to walk through this door, but it is a door. And passing through it will be worth it no matter what the Lord has sovereignly ordained the door to be or feel like for us. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, whatever the door looks like or feels like for you, it is nothing compared to what's on the other side of the door. That heaven and Jesus are far, far greater than your mind could ever comprehend. So great that whatever suffering you endure on this side of the door to heaven is pure nothingness compared to what is to come. That he's worth it. He's worth it. This requires for us a right biblical thinking. Not, I will die someday and I'll get my wings in heaven and I'll be this little spirit that floats around and all of... No, no, no. I will have a glorified body and I will live. I will actually live the way that I was intended to live from the very beginning. He finishes in verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Endurance. All of this calls for faithful endurance. Don't give in. Don't give in to cultural norms that lead to acceptance and ease. Don't give in to casual Christianity with its worldliness. Don't give in to carelessness in your discipleship. Endure. Faithful endurance. Endurance depends on faith. When, when I, Tony am terrified at any circumstances around me. I am doubting the truth of the gospel. I'm not believing the gospel in those moments. Faith depends on the word. My endurance depends on faith and faith depends on the word. Paul says, Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. If I'm weak in faith, I'm weak in word. If I'm weak in faith, I have one need and one need alone. Word, word, word. I need God's word to come in and change my thinking, to increase my faith, to give me a right understanding of who he is and who I am. I won't know how to respond apart from the word being in my heart and my mind. And as he refers to earlier here, I won't be spirit-led because that's how he leads And so let me encourage you, let me encourage you, as we come to a close here, the Lord's desire for you and for me is that we live in light of his coming, faithfully enduring and using opportunities to bear witness concerning what he has done and who he is. And if you're here this morning and you don't know, here's what God has done. He created this world in perfection, but we, man, denied God and denied his law. 
Sin entered the world and separated man from God. But God is rich in mercy and grace. And so when this took place in the garden, his story didn't end. It wasn't over. God is writing a story of redemption. He shows his love for us, sinful, broken mankind, and that while we were rejecting him, living for all of our desires and hating him, he sent his son Jesus into the world to redeem both man and creation. He died on a cross, taking the penalty for the sins that we commit. He rose again from the grave to show that God accepted his sacrifice and that he triumphed over everything that was broken and lost. And This world will one day be made right. And those who have trusted in Christ will be rescued and will reign forever and ever in the new and unbroken earth. But this is only for those who are saved. If you're here this morning and that's not you, then Jesus' encouragement in this text, do not be terrified, doesn't apply to you. And that sounds harsh. I understand that sounds harsh, but it's truth. If you've not trusted in Christ, if you're not rescued, if you're not saved, then his words, don't be terrified, don't apply. Because what delivers us from terror is what delivered us from sin. You must embrace Jesus and follow him. And so I want to encourage you, examine your heart today. Are you forgiven? Are you free from sin? You can be. You can be free from sin and separation from God. But only in Christ, only Jesus made a way for you to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so I would encourage you, trust in him today. Today in the prayer room, Dave and Caressa will be there. You're free to go there. It's in the back of the lobby as we sing. For those of you who know and love Jesus, you're here this morning. I think there's two ways in particular as we talk about the need for us to be in the Word and embrace the Word. I think there's two ways for us to hear that today. If you, if you think of soldiers in an army, there, there are soldiers who have been in the army or in the military who have been forced there because they've been drafted in. They, they don't want to be there. They have to be there. And then there are those who love their country. And they want to be there. They delight in being there. They run to be there. They sign up willingly. They, they fight joyfully. Because of their love. When you hear from the scriptures or in sermons or whatever, we've got to be in the word. We've got to be embracing the word. We have to be people. We need to be people. We want to be people who are like the second group. Those who love their king and love the kingdom. And therefore, out of their love, they run to the word. They want to be in the word. They want to know the king. They want to be equipped to fight for this king and to bear witness to this king. But even if you're here and it falls on you like a rock. 
And it feels like you're being drafted into something that you don't want to do. You don't want to read the Bible. It's a burden to you. Let me encourage you. Read the Bible. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. You will stay in that place apart from the word. And it's not a place you want to be in. Whatever group you're in, you have the same exact need. One, you're, you're rejoicing and, and embracing it with delight. The other, you're callous and tired and resistant. Either way, there's only hope through God planting his word in you. To run to it. Embrace it. As we consider being a people who prepares for his coming, one of the wonderful ways the Lord has given us to prepare for his coming is in the Lord's Supper, even by remembering the gospel and remembering that he's returning for us. We purposefully participate together looking back on the completed work of Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, and at the same time we look ahead at his coming when we will finally be rescued from every sign of sin and brokenness. Both things are happening as we take the Lord's Supper. The bread symbolizes his body that was broken so that not a hair of our heads would perish. The cup symbolizes the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, as we prepare to take, let's do it hopefully, joyfully responding to what he's done and hopeful for what is to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. So please, Lord, sanctify us by the truth. We're desperate. We're broken, Lord. We are idolaters. Even though you have made us holy and blameless before you in Christ, we continue to wander. We are prone to wander. We're prone to worship and give ourselves to things that you have created, not to you, the creator. We want to delight in you. We want to rejoice in you, Lord. So I pray that even now, Lord, you would help us embrace your word. Help us embrace the truths that you have spoken in this text. Things that are to come and to see them as hopeful things, knowing that they are only a a, a temporary thing on the way to what is forever eternal and joyful. Help us to delight in you in that. Help us to trust in you and not be terrified at what is around us or before us. We need you for this, Lord. We need you. So come, bring about repentance, bring about faith in those here who don't know you, please. Fill our hearts with joy for you. In Christ's name, amen.